I'm Mike Kozer, and this is Lost Ballparks. Join us now for another Brooklyn ball game here at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn, USA. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Hello, everyone, with Bob Prince and Nellie King. This is Gene Osbert speaking to you from Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. Well, friends, here we are back at the Polo Grounds in New York City. We're underway in the first of a twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Just the start of things. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shaper or two throughout the evening. Hello, this is Gladys Gooding. For the past several years, I have been playing at Ebbets Field for our beloved bums, the Brooklyn Dodgers. In 1942, Gladys Gooding became the first professional baseball organist playing an electric Hammond organ for the Brooklyn Dodgers at Ebbets Field. She stayed with the team until they moved to Los Angeles after the 1957 season. You ask someone from that generation what they remember most about attending games at Ebbets Field, and they will most certainly mention Gladys Gooding. Right alongside Red Barber, Vince Scully, the famous right field wall, Dodger legends like Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, Sandy Koufax, Duke Snyder, Gil Hodges, and Roy Campanella. Before Gooding and her organ were moved to a glass box high above the crowd at Ebbets Field, she spent her first games situated right next to the Dodger dugout. Players would come over in between innings and request songs. Gooding was the first. Others followed. Jane Jarvis, who played for the Milwaukee Braves and the New York Mets. Eddie Layton for the New York Yankees. Ronnie Dale for the Reds at Crosley Field, and then Nancy Faust for the Chicago White Sox, who became so much a part of the fabric of going to a game at Comiskey Park that fans couldn't imagine a game without her. Nancy was the White Sox organist from 1970 to 2010. And today, she's sitting at her organ here on the Lost Ballparks podcast. Is that you, Mike? It's me, Nancy. How are you? Great, Mike. Is it just the two of us? Because I don't quite understand the Zoom technology. It is, is it yeah. Because when we, we get behind closed doors, or I could play just the two of us. <laughs> That's for you and me. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Thanks oh. so much for uh, for joining. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Oh, I really enjoyed listening to the trailer of your new podcast and hearing all those voices from the beyond. Oh, And yeah. I know it will appeal to so many people that have great memories and that want to know about the past. 41 years as the organist for the Chicago White Sox, much of it's been at Comiskey Park. How did you get the job? I was playing for different kinds of functions like banquets and dinners. And one of the functions that I played for was something that my mother wasn't able to do because she was a professional musician. So I took her place and it was attended by the general manager of the White Sox. His name was Stu Holcomb. So he actually heard me play at this banquet. I realized that this man of power from the ballpark was there. And I had friends in school. By the way, I was still going to school, North Park College. I had friends that encouraged me to follow up with a letter and let them know that I'd be interested should there be an opening. So I did. I wrote to Stu Holcomb. And like that next year, he sent me a letter and said, yeah, we'd like your services. I never auditioned or anything. But he actually did hear me play at the luncheon. And thank goodness that your mom wasn't able to make it that night. I'll say, because she probably knew just about as little about baseball as I did. Although I think um, I was more in tune to what popular songs. My, my mother played things like songs from musicals and old time songs. And I kept up all during college because it was just fun to play music that I heard on the radio. So it was just an easy fit for me. I really knew nothing about baseball, but I certainly could play anything. So if I got a suggestion, it was easy to do. And when I got my job, Stu gave me a list of players and he said, maybe you could play a little something as they approach the batter's box. 
and each song reflected the hometown of the player. And there, I, I just remember Bart Johnson being from California. So I play California, here I come. Now, when you first started in 1970, the organ was in the Centerfield Bleachers at Comiskey Park. Is that right? The organ was located in the Centerfield Bleachers. 1970 was very lowly attended, and it was a great year for me to break in. But the organ was placed outside with the people, and that was pretty um, unconventional. And that was done by Bill Veck, who hired the first organist prior to me, whose name was Shay Torrent. And he was hired in 1960. And Bill did something kind of strange by just placing the organ right outside with, with the fans. And that really worked to my advantage because I was able to get information that I didn't know about. It was kind of a form of, I guess, social media prior to social media where fans could give me ideas of songs and give me ideas of what to play. So how would you make your way into Comiskey Park and to the organ each night? How would you get there? My goodness, it was so long ago, but I just probably walked all around the, um, what would you call it, the concourse, all into center field, up a few stairs and into the center field bleachers. And the organ was in this little booth and it had tarps that came down at the side in case it should rain or be windy. I had a, a radio out there with me so that I could listen to the broadcast while I was trying to figure out players' names and things like that. I was trying to gain some information about the game just by listening to the broadcasts. And so some folks may not realize, but long before the Cubs, Harry Carey was the play-by-play guy for the Chicago White Sox. Hello again, everybody. So you would have been listening to him out there in center field. Well, that's a good point. Although Harry didn't start until my second year. He was hired by Stu Holcomb as well. So I really enjoyed listening to Harry's broadcast. He was very colorful. Holy cow! Carlton Fisk has put the White Sox ahead. A line drive. I was afraid it might not get up high enough. And the White Sox lead. Look at this. Look at this. Holy Here's your cow. face in, Harry. <laughs> he hit a low break. Look at the White Sox dugout. And it was Harry that picked up on some of the songs that I play. And he'd say, oh, listen to that. We should actually get that organist where she has a better accessibility to the fans. And so that I think he actually encouraged management to move me in to behind home plate, which was my final resting place. No, it was my my perch. <laughs> so one night in 1977. This is WMAQ Chicago. The Kansas City Royals are in town. Harry Carey and Jimmy Pearsall, they go to the bottom of the six. And you are about to make ballpark history because as their pitcher begins to struggle and eventually is taken out of the game, as he makes his way to the dugout, you decide to play. Nana, hey, hey, goodbye. And, you know, that was the day when, uh, well, when Bill Veck owned the team and the fans were just loose, you know, and they responded so well. And because we were vying for first place with Kansas City, they just rather than clapping along is what they normally did when I would play that song. Everybody just burst out in song. That's the crowd. And um, the effects were just phenomenal because 
prior to that, the only thing fans would sing along to was take me out to the ball game or the national anthem. And so it was rather intimidating, I'm sure, for the pitcher. I don't remember who the pitcher was. Poor guy. <laughs> yeah. And so, but it caught on and the media said, well, what was that? You know, what was that you played afterwards? And actually, I thought the name of the song was Sha Na Na, but that's close enough. I just knew it was something that was short, lent itself to hand clapping. And I learned later it was not on a hey, hey, goodbye. Became synonymous with the team. And actually, then other ballparks picked it up and they'd play it on their PA system. The uh, White Sox actually had a, well, I should say Mercury Records had a like a little celebration at the end of the season, a ceremony where they presented me with a gold record of Nana Goodbye because they re-released the song because it became quite popular for sporting events and people wanted to hear it again, I guess. Hearing that song played at Comiskey Park is a vivid memory for White Sox fans. And another one is of Harry Carey singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Now, I know a lot of folks think of Harry Carey singing that at Wrigley Field, but him grabbing the microphone, the PA microphone, and singing it along with the crowd actually began at Comiskey Park with you accompanying him uh, on the organ. Well, that's right. Well, of course, I played it by myself until Harry, uh, people realized he was up in the booth, which was visible for me, which was great. And I could see him swing that mic and leading everybody. And before you know it, I mean, he was the he was the main attraction for at least the people that could see him during Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And I guess it was Bill Zvek's idea to broadcast it over the whole park. You know, I mean, the story goes that he said, oh, well, I'm not good enough. And Bill Vec would say, well, yeah, you're, you are good enough. In fact, you're so bad, you're good. So then that became the tradition was for Harry to be on the scoreboard. They'd show him and he'd let everybody and take me out to the ball game. And it just was just a highlight of the game. All right. Everybody. Okay, Nancy. When you went to a game at Kavinsky Park, it did not matter what the score was. You were going to stay until the seventh inning till you got a chance to hear that. And it was Bill Veck's idea. Bill Veck, of course, was the owner of the White Sox and one of the most colorful characters in all of baseball history, for sure. Can you talk to us about the ragtime promotion that he came up with that had a long-lasting effect on your life? Well, I certain, most certainly did, because ragtime... Not, well, let me say that all of Bill Veck promotions involved door prizes, and it kept the fans engaged. Everybody wanted to win something. Usually it was silly things, but he had so many promotions going. And I think that's when he actually realized the value of my music, because I, I could play music that reflected whatever the promotion was. If it was Irish, German, Greek, or whatever, or if it was circus day, I'd be playing circus music or anti-superstition or whatever the promotion was. Well, at the the promotion you're talking about involved ragtime articles, like an old-time piano and an old-time car. And they also brought a broken-down donkey, I should say old donkey, into the center field. And that was a door prize. But the donkey was not claimed. 
I happened to have a horse at the time. And I, when I realized that it wasn't claimed and it was still at the field, uh, the park beneath the stands a couple of days later, I asked Bill if I could have that donkey rather than returning it. And he let me have it. So that kind of created an interest in donkeys. And actually, after Rosita passed away, I acquired another donkey, which I still have. And right now, my donkey's name is Mandy now. I'm in her barn and the organ can't fit in the house. So we're keeping the organ in the barn. And that's where you are with me in Mandy's (laughs) barn. (laughs) So that one moment ended up changing your life pretty dramatically. Yes, it did. So here we are in a barn. Thank you very much, Bill. And yeah, it did. Did Billy Martin, and I'm guessing this is probably when he was managing the Yankees, did he actually have the umpire call and ask you to stop playing because you were throwing off his pitcher? Well, he didn't ask the umpire to do that, but the umpire was aware that he was very in tune to the organist at another park prior to coming to our park, and he blamed the loss on the noise of the organ. And because the umpire was aware of that, when I played, the umpire turned around and made me stop. And at that time, Stu Holcomb called and said, "Don't you're not doing anything wrong. You keep playing. So it was the umpire that was doing it in, in respect to Billy Martin so that Billy Martin wouldn't get upset. And Billy Martin actually called me at the organ, I don't know, like the next day or something and said, oh, honey, I just want you to know that wasn't me. So he was kind of apologetic, didn't need to be. Everybody was catering to Billy Martin at the time, you know, so. Okay, Nancy, since we are lucky enough to have you at the organ, I thought we'd go through a few scenarios that might come up at a baseball game at Comiskey Park, and you could talk about what it is that you might play. For instance, if a batter draws a walk from a pitcher, you might play... Well, you know what I did, actually, so that I wouldn't be at a loss, what I always had with me was, when I think of, I would hear a song, and it was good, I'd put it in a category, here's some walk songs, just so I could you know, refer to it real quickly. So here's a, I became, I'm out in Arizona now and I played for spring training. So here's my list from a couple of years ago. Here's, I, there were things like uh, long and winding road. So if a pitcher was keeping his eye on a runner at first base, you know, and kept throwing it over there to check on him, you might play what? Oh, you mean if somebody was trying to steal a base? All right, we have to go back here a few years for this one, but Ozzie Guillen walks to the plate. Oh, well, Ozzie Guillen, well, sure, there were a lot of songs that applied to Ozzie. um, Oh, because his last name looked like Gilligan, I would play uh, Gilligan's Island. probably didn't know what I was doing this for. And to tell you the truth, in those days, I don't think players cared much what I was playing. And I felt I was there for the entertainment of the fans. It was the fans that were surrounding me, giving me great ideas. And um, I just hoped that they were enjoying what they were hearing. Omar Vizquel. Oh, that's well, because Vizquel sounds like physical. I... like that. But I have to tell you, Mike, I mean, it it wasn't just playing for players. And I did usually find something that would be applicable with the help of fans who also gave me some insight about players, you know, that I may not have known. Like there was a player that went out with somebody named Lucille 
And it was a big deal because Lucille wasn't the woman that he thought she was. So I'd play. Or somebody told me that um, George Brett had had hemorrhoid surgery. So I played, oh, you can't sit down. Oh, no, you can't sit down. When he came back to play, of course. Or I might have played a walk right in, sit right down or something like that. Or like if a cat would go across the field. Um, That was another thing that offered me songs, was just playing teams from other towns where I could play their... Yeah, yeah. Boston. I think Boston did that song, or I could have done something like this. Oh, there's just so many situations. And I once the scoreboard came along and I was brought in and I could see what was posted up on the scoreboard, I was able to play songs that reflected what the messaging was. If the message, oh, if it was a proposal to, from one fan to another, every once in a while we had things like that where I could play... love and marriage or if it was welcome the university of wisconsin or you know welcome college night then i could play all the college fight songs or if the message was a welcome coca-cola group where i'd play or you know if there was a rain delay there was also a lot of um, rain music so whatever the situation there was just music that was appropriate. Before the big Jumbotron came along with their own music, I was really in my wheelhouse. Those were just wonderful days. I guess it wasn't until I went back to Twitter that I realized people still remembered that style. I guess it revived me a little bit. And I'm really happy to know that there's people that still remember and just are interested. For a lot of us who go to games now, it just sometimes feels like a wall of sound. You know, we miss those days where we could sit in the ballpark before the game, watch batting practice and hear the organ play. I think when we think back, yeah, things seemed a lot easier and more slowly moving. Ronnie Dale used to play at Crosley Field and would play the organ for maybe 20 minutes after a game and people wouldn't even leave. They would just sit in their seats and kind of reflect on the game and reflect on a Sunday afternoon. And again, it was just a simpler time. It was. And I just, my husband would say, you know, it's like people leave happy, even though um, we may have lost. Because I know I'd played upbeat songs like Morning Train or just something that people could walk out happy to. Just being glad that they experienced a ball game, win or lose. It certainly was a place where so many bonds were formed. I saw that happen generation after generation. (laughs) How is it possible in 41 years you only missed five games? How on earth is that possible? Oh, I well, you know, there was only 81 games a season, so I only had to be healthy 81 days out of the year, you know, and I guess the hardest part about my job was just getting there because there was always traffic and things like that, and I didn't live very close to the park. But once I got there, it's just, it was just a grand party. And um, the, well, the reason I missed the games was your fault, Eric. <laughs> I, um, I had a child. <laughs> And then so I missed my five games, but then the team went out of town. And by the time they came back, I was ready to go back to work. So 
That's why I missed my Fab Games. Now, there was a time in the 70s, correct me if I'm wrong, where you were approached by the Cubs to come play at Wrigley Field when you weren't playing at Comiskey Park. Is that true? Yeah, there was a lot of attention given to the music there in the 70s. And I did receive a couple letters from the Chicago Cubs and saying, would you be interested in playing when the schedules don't conflict? And usually they didn't. And I thought that would be great. And I asked Mr. Vack, and he said something like, young lady, you're going to have to pick one or the other. Uh, He just didn't want to share the music, I guess. I knew I had a good thing. So it was out of the question at the time. So many years Uh, at at Comiskey Park and and, and so many memories. And like you said, people who started off as kids, then bringing their kids and their kids' kids, uh, and and who continue to let us know on Lost Ballparks about their connection to you and about the music that you play. Because there were a lot of years where the White Sox were not great. But people would still love to come to the ballpark because it was an experience. That's true. And music was part of it. You know, there, and Harry certainly, the, having Harry broadcast the games. Hello again, everybody. Harry Carey and Jimmy Pearsall from Comiskey Park, where we're going to have a, a wild night tonight. Harry made you want to be there, win or lose as well. I mean, he just said, you know, you can't be fun at the old ballpark. And uh, there was just something about the atmosphere and having a good time. And Hey, I want him to see the shirt you're wearing. Can you make that out? It says outpatients. I think everybody should. Now hold up your legs. He's wearing shorts. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Fortunately, he focused on every aspect of the game. And I was fortunate to be one of those aspects. And the music was. So how close were you to Harry Carey, by the way? I mean, was he, was his booth right next to yours? Um, It was within eyesight. It was above me and then over. So if I looked up and over, I could see him. And he'd give me a nod and I'd know he was going to dance. So that would be like after um, after taking me out to the ball game, we'd he'd do a little. But yeah, so it was really a, an advantage that I could see him. That was really great to be located in that position. And when he did take me out to the ball game, I gave, I put it in a key that he could sing it. And I always gave him an introduction like this. And then when he do this, I know he's ready to start. favorite player, by the way, to, to play for? The player that I realized sparked most emotion from the fans was Richie Allen. Definitely. I mean, I, I don't know much about players, but I just knew that when he'd come up, they'd all stand, you know, and they'd go crazy. So that this guy's really magnetic. You know, I mean, he's, he has charisma. And I, I realized it after watching him a few coming up to bat. So I, I guess he'd be the most outstanding of the players, but there certainly are so many. And you would play for, for Dick Allen. What would you play for him? It was a knee-jerk reaction. I thought this guy's like a superstar and that song had been popular for just a couple of years. So I just played it.
seemed I played it and then he'd hit a home run and it was like, oh, well, that's a perfect match. And even Sports Illustrated mentioned it in an article about him. You know, they say, oh, even the organist has a special song for him. And I think that was the first time I ever played a song based on a player's performance. You know, it was just because he was that good. Yeah, I can I can picture him up to bat and, of course, crushing a home run into the left field seats at Comiskey Park. And so uh, it's just to me, it's sad that he did not see himself inducted to the Hall of Fame. And, and hopefully that will be rectified at some point. Well, it certainly is a lot of hope for next time. And it would be a real travesty if he doesn't make it next time. In an article written last year, ESPN's Tanya Malinowski said, Nancy didn't use the organ simply to provide background music to the game. She used it to react to it, to score it like a film, to make the fans' experience even more sensory. That speaks for all who were able and lucky enough to watch you play at Comiskey Park. Well, thank you, Mike. It was, it was my pleasure. It was, I was, like I say, in my wheelhouse doing the one thing that I was able, felt I was able to do. I don't know what I would have done if baseball hadn't come along. So I'm very thankful for the sport and for primarily for the fans. Actually, it, it was the fans that made my job such so enjoyable. Thank you so much for spending some uh, some time with us today and for your and for your donkey for allowing us to invade <laughs> her barn. So that we well, anytime, Mike. Record some of the podcast here. Well, we appreciate what you do, too, because fans like to be like to remember the better times in their lives. And um, you certainly do provide that for them, providing a lot of wonderful memories. Thank you. Well, I'm glad th- to be part of it. Thank you, Nancy. And thank you to your son, Eric. And Joe, Thanks, for, Eric. <laughs> for helping out today. We so appreciate them behind the scenes. It's been an honor to talk with you again. And Thank you. Take care. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye, Mike. Hey, look, I'll just say this. If you spent your summers at Comiskey Park, the baseball palace of the world, I'm sure there are a few things that you'll always remember. Maybe going to McCutty's after the game, Harry Carey, some interesting uniform choices, shorts, 1976, the exploding scoreboard at center field, and the iconic organ music of Nancy Faust. Nancy's on Twitter, by the way, at Played41, at P-L-A-Y-E-D-4-1. All right, next week on the Lost Ballparks podcast, you can't talk about baseball in the 70s and 80s without mentioning the Cobra, Dave Parker. Dave Parker grew up across the street from Cincinnati's Crosley Field. So you and your friends used to go in the Crosley Field parking lot and do what? We would throw rocks at each other. It would be like two teams. We would do rock battles. One thing that we used to do was a flat rock, and we could make it go around the building, make it curve around the building. One day while playing this game, a future baseball Hall of Famer who played for the Cincinnati Reds walked out of the clubhouse into the parking lot and caught them playing this game. So we followed them every day. They were familiar with us. Wait till you hear who that was and what happened next. Never forget it. We'll have that story for you next week when Dave Parker, the Cobra, joins Lost Ballparks.